Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's The Counting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're excited to continue our year-end toolkit series, giving you some tools to help you through your year-end close process. And even for those of you not in your year-end, as you know, stay tuned. Lots of these reminders will apply no matter when your year-end occurs, and hopefully will help you get ahead in your process. You know, what we're seeing out there is, you know, the higher interest rates, which has lower profitability, right? Tight credit, supply chain problems, we've got market volatility, and we got geopolitical issues. All of those things put pressure on this area. First of all, just mathematically, Squeezing lower profitability, yeah. right? Yeah. So every dollar is more material. So every time you have an error now, it, it's got more possibility of being material. Secondly, it just puts stress, right? So you got registrants are stressed to meet their estimates. Uh, there's market pressure there. And anytime you have that pressure, now you have more of an incentive for maybe fraudulent activity as a possibility or just, you know, poor judgment, right? Because of all that stress. We, we see in these times of challenging market conditions, we see a higher risk of fraud and error. Joining the podcast today is Mike Mullen, a PwC partner in our national office who deals with complex judgments on materiality and error analysis on a daily basis. In this episode, Mike shares his expertise on how to best manage these judgments and also provides insights into the latest regulatory trends that may impact these assessments. Also, Kyle Moffitt, leader of the professional practice group within PwC's national office, joins us again as a guest host, finishing up his three-episode tour. If you enjoy listening to Kyle, you should also check out our just-released SEC and Audit Committee Reminders episodes. With that, let's get started. Mike, welcome back to our year-end podcast series. Uh, as 1231 year-end companies are preparing their financial statements, and of course, many audits are, are in progress and will continue to be so, materiality and certainly error evaluations are, uh, of course, top of mind. The SEC and FASB um, guidance around evaluating errors has not changed, um, but this continues to be an area of focus or an area that presents challenges for companies. And we've seen, obviously, the environment shifting a bit as well. We've seen regulators kind of um, change, not necessarily change views, but views have evolved over time. Um, and we've dus- you know, discussed this in some of our prior podcasts. Um, and obviously, we'll talk a little bit about clawbacks as well. But I think that's also going to influence um, you know, the, the, the SEC's focus on the topic. But first, can you just level set and provide a refresher on really the guiding principles of SAB 99 and, and what we're seeing broadly, just for our listeners to kind of have a, a good understanding of, of how we're thinking about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to do that, Kyle. And it's good to be here. Uh, it, it is an excellent year-end topic to discuss, and there really is a, quite a bit of focus on it. Um, I would say our experience in, in the past year has kind of confirmed our views and perspectives that I've shared before uh, in, in similar uh, topics in previous year ends. You know, the same best practices, uh, the same pitfalls that we've seen, and, and really the key focus areas. They, they've been pretty consistent, but what we've seen, and there, there are some developments um, that I think are going to put a lot more focus on the area. And, and those are, and I'll, I'll mention them here, and then we can come back come to them, just the overall environment. And I'm going to talk more about that in a in second. Very challenging, both in the market and from the regulator's perspective. We have the clawback rule, which you mentioned, which I think is going to have a real impact here. And then recently, Paul Munter uh, provided a statement, 
And we talked a lot about his statement last year on materiality, <laughs> and then he kind of updated it this year. And um, I think that's going to have an impact, and we should talk about that a little bit as well. But let me start with the environment, because you know what we're seeing out there is you know the higher interest rates, which has lower profitability, right? Tight credit, supply chain problems, we've got market volatility, and we've got geopolitical issues. All of those things put pressure on this area. First of all, just mathematically, Squeezing lower profitability, yeah. right? Yeah. So every dollar is more material. So every time you have an error now, it, it's got more possibility of being material. Secondly, it just puts stress, right? So you got registrants are stressed to meet their estimates. Uh, there's market pressure there. And anytime you have that pressure, now you have more of an incentive for maybe fraudulent activity as a possibility or just you know poor judgment, right? Because of all that stress. We, we see in these times of challenging market conditions, we see a higher risk of fraud and error. So that plays right into it. So I just think that's what's going to put a lot more stress um, on the exercise that we've talked about before. Now, coming back just to, you know, kind of refresh on the basics, right? Um, what we're talking about here is, is, is that SAB 99 provides the, the framework for evaluating materiality and evalu evaluating errors. The registrants have a responsibility to have financial statements that are not materially misstated. We go back to the concept ruling from FASB and the Supreme Court ruling as far as the definition of, you know, what a reasonable investor would, would think. And it's very straightforward. It is, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and that's where it gets difficult, right? Because then you say, okay. And, and, and so a layperson might read that and say, well, a reasonable investor wouldn't care about that. But what we do have is a body of practice that's evolved. We have interpretations from the SEC. And so now it's a pretty well understood exercise, but there's still a lot of judgment. Um, it, you have to do the, the math. So there's a quantitative aspect of it. How significant is the error quantitatively? But more importantly, it's, it's all the qualitative stuff, you know, the, around it. Did it affect key metrics? You know, what segment was it in? And interestingly, you know, did it affect compensation? And we'll come back to that when we talk about clawbacks. So there's good examples in SAB 99. Um, you know, the first thing you, we do, which we talked about, is you, you said, you know, there's general benchmarks that have evolved. So for a normal profit earning company, 5% of pre-tax income, right, is, is, is a starting point. Now, sometimes that doesn't make sense. So again, some judgment comes in. If you have near break-even results or some other metrics that maybe are more important, you can adjust that. But you then need to always come back to what is the gap impact and you know how significant is that? And then what the framework also tells you is, okay, you've, you've now evaluated an error, you've determined you know, collectively whether it's material, then how do you record it? And if it's can you record it as an out-of-period adjustment, or do you need to go back and either revise or restate previously issued financial statements where you get into, the, again, the impacts of the clawback rule that we'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about? You know, Mike, it's, it's interesting. You know, when you talk a lot about the, this analysis, right, and it's the qualitative, the quantitative analysis, one of the things that, that I've seen, and, and, of course, my career at the SEC and then even here, and I'm just curious about your reaction to this, you know, the staff is not afraid to ask for a SAB 99 analysis, right? They, they do it quite often. And I'm just wondering, like, have you seen an uptick in requests for SAB 99 analyses and um, in objections potentially to, to some of uh, the conclusions companies are making? We have. And that also adds to the experience I was talking about during the course of the year. We've seen that in comment letters, uh, very directly challenging materiality judgments. They've seen um, disclosures of either an out-of-period adjustment or uh, maybe maybe a revision where the company determined it wasn't material, so we don't have we don't have a material weakness, but we're all but we're changing numbers. 
So they, they say, well, we've, we, they notice that. They say, send us your analysis. And one of the things we talked about last year, which is one of the best practices, is to have good contemporaneous documentation, well-supported assertions, and, and as objective as possible review of it, and not, not just be a putting together any argument and to argue that it's not material. So they do challenge it, and we've seen um, through a comment letter process um, some forced uh, you know, restatements because yeah. they just, you know, it's, it's kind of arbitrary, right? If you, yeah. if you can't get, the, you know, get agreement. So we have seen an uptick in that. And that's again, part of that challenging environment that I kind of, you know, alluded to earlier. Th- those are, those are great points. Uh, Mike, last year on the podcast, you spoke in detail about the speech that Paul Munter did release on materiality. And, and obviously last week we, we had Munter released a statement uh, regarding errors in the statement of cash flows we talked already about clawback policies, right? And so that new requirement, certainly we're going to have to see these checkboxes on the front cover of Form 10K. Um, a lot of interest, I th- I'd say, from not just the regulators, but from companies, from preparers on uh, checking the box. Um, can you talk a little bit about just – or just remind the audience of a few key messages of of the speech um, and then reflect on what we're seeing, in, in fact, in the practice? Yeah, I, I think – Registrants and auditors need to pay close attention to the statements from from Paul Munter, and I, I think they're helpful because it really indicates um, how the SEC is viewing um, these things. And so you'd, you'd be better off knowing that ahead of time and, and dealing with it appropriately. So he said some interesting things. First of all, he did notice, as we have noticed, restatements are up, right? So th- so there's a metric that people pay attention to, and um, so he's, he's noticed that, but also noticed that the share of uh, when there's restatements, there's more revisions than restatements, which means companies are making a judgment that, yeah, we have to fix an error, but it's not not material. And so that's been challenged a little bit. He particularly talked about the cash flow statement. And this is important because just what what, what has played out in practice, is people pay a lot of attention to you know, the income statement, right? And earnings, and that's, that's understood. But the cash flow statement, first of all, future cash flows are obviously very important to investors. But the cash flow statement is an important statement. And I would say, uh, I think the SEC's view is maybe there's not enough focus on that from preparers because, you know, maybe their controls aren't, aren't and their processes aren't good enough. So there's errors being made and maybe from auditors, right, to pay more attention to the auditing. And in particular, I think uh, what I've seen is it's significant transactions mm-hmm. that aren't getting recorded correctly. And what happens is there's often, as you know, a lot of focus on, okay, we're going to have this significant transaction. You know, what's the accounting? And there's a, a lot of time spent on that. What sometimes doesn't happen is, well, what is the cash flow implication? And what are the disclosure implications? So I think my one one recommendation to, to the registrants out there are to have a good process and make sure you're considering the cash flow implications when you're doing your accounting memos and analyzing transactions. The other thing from both a preparer and auditor standpoint is these transactions are obviously happening during the course of the year. So a lot of these restatements are in the quarters. Right. So sometimes the company and the auditor hasn't gone through a full process and full auditing of a transaction. My, again, my recommendation is, you know, even though you're just doing a, as, a, as an auditor, you're doing an in, in, you know, interim review, go ahead and the company should have a full process to fully account for the transaction and the auditing should be done so that if there is, are there any issues that can be dealt with on a timely basis. And um, so a lot of these cash flow problems are uh, quarters. The other thing is in the, um, Last year, I talked a little bit about some of the losing arguments. And one of the losing arguments he pointed out is, well, it's just the classification. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole cash flow statement is <laughs> really just what the, the classification, right? <laughs> yeah. So in particular, is important, uh, again, is 
cash flow for operations can be a very important metric, right? So in particular, if there's errors between operating and, and, and the other two categories, that's going to, you know, create some, some and it'll attention. impact free cash flows, right? A lot well, of companies right. want to show free cash flows or adjust to free cash flows. So obviously that's, you know, part of the calculation. So you, you need to get it right. Yeah. So, so those are my key takeaways from, from that, from his speech. And then um, the other thing you mentioned that came out of the SEC was the, the clawback rule. I think this is really going to be significant. So it's effective. It was effective in October and companies by earlier this month had to uh, have their policies in place. And basically what it says, right, if you have an error, then there has to be a, a policy to go back and reclaim, um, you know, the compensation that was earned by executive officers that would not have been earned had that been recorded. Conceptually, like, I think we all get it. I think, the, you know, having that accountability, if, if somebody has a payout that, that, you know, the math says you should, I think everybody would agree that that's probably, you know, good, good accountability. The problem I see is the unintended consequences. I think this is going to put a lot of pressure on the preparers out there, the controllers, right? The CFOs. I mean, okay, I've made a mistake, you know, there's a mistake made in my shop and I'm going to have to fix it and it's going to cost my boss, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of money. So that, that's going to bring tension on top of the rest of the pressures that I already indicated earlier, given the environment. So I think that's going to be difficult and it's going to test the imp impartiality and objective assessments that need to be made because now with more pressure tend to maybe rationalize in an argument and maybe make an argument about something that's not material um, that, that perhaps is. Uh, I think we'll see more push to record things as out of period adjustments, mm -hmm. which is fine if, if you evaluate it appropriately. What I worry about is, uh, are, you know, are things going to be fully disclosed and transparent, you know, given, given the pressures and, and our, our rationalization is going to play out. So um, I think that's going to have a pretty big impact. And as you said, it's, it's going to be very clear because on the front cover of the 10K, I have to check a box and say, yes, we've, we've had errors that we've had to correct. Right. And so. Um, it and, be, and, and it may not even be a material error. That's for, correct. Right. Like you've, you choose. Yes to correct something that, you know, you've identified an error, you choose to correct it, even though it wasn't material, you concluded it wasn't, you could put it through an out-of-period adjustment, you potentially would have to go back. If you decide to go back and, and change those prior period amounts, previously issued financials, then you need to check the box there. So does that then, is that a deterrent? There are companies going to say, I'm just going to push it through, like to your point, make it an out-of-period adjustment. I'm not worried about pushing. I don't want to call attention to this, whether it's investors or even the SEC enforcement division. That's, that's exactly right. Like right now there's probably, there's been a, some disparity in practice, how people have recorded things, how they've disclosed it, you know, when and where, and now there's going to be a very easy and direct way for the SEC to know, okay, there's, there's been Absolutely, a change yeah. here. And, and then, I mean, you almost tee up the automatic question then, okay, well, how, where, where's the materiality assessment? And the other thing, um, we were talking about the error corrections and evaluations, but Often that the other thing that comes up obviously is the control implications, yeah. and basically a, a restatement is presumed material control weakness, and so that's another aspect of this that that's going to get a lot more attention, and again one that um, that takes uh, a lot of judgment, and uh, but that same objective approach is going to be required because it's again it's going to be very obvious you've had an error you had to check the box and now the, the SEC can tee up a couple questions okay well how did you record it and show us your materiality assessment and show us your controls evaluation. Um, and, and there's going to be a very easy way to data mine that I don't oh, yeah. it. And so, as I said before, like I, I, in, in this world, for many reasons, I say like detection risk is, is hundred percent. Right. So yeah. there, there's nothing that's going to come uh, under the, nothing under here. the radar, nothing's going to be disclosed in a, in a footnote and 
disclosures yeah. indicating, hey, we had a change in a quarter and you just bury yeah. it. No, it's going to be fully transparent yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. if you make a change to a prior period financial. That, that's right. No, it's, it's, you know, it's one of the things that I've heard. Um, th- this obviously has gotten a lot of interest from, you know, audit committees, right? So you have audit committees that, you know, potentially could be more involved in some of these, especially when there is wrongdoing, uh, potentially by an employee or executive, um, because it is impacting executive compensation and wanting to your point early, this, this objective assessment, assessment or analysis that you may be in a position where the audit committee is more engaged. They may engage outside counsel to take a deeper look into it. Um, so I think it, it certainly is going to, has gotten the attention of uh, many, many folks, um, on, on this topic. I, I think it's going to be a while before we kind of see the dust settle. Yeah. We, we've talked about, um, before. The audit committee has a big role to play in this. And and where we've seen registrants handle this really well is when they have a really strong audit committee engaged, yeah. have good processes. Um, what we've talked about on, on things like this is have dry run, right? Have, have a process. How is this going to work uh, if we have an error? You know, what are the communications? What are, who's, who's responsible for what aspects and, and how are we going to, you know, analyze it? And as far as like, what are the key metrics and, and a lot of things that would go into a SAB 99 memo, you can have that ready to go. Right. And then you just plug in there and say, okay, now how does it relate to what we say instead of changing your tune? Exactly. Uh, depending upon what you find, that's probably not best practice. Yeah. And I, I love the point you made about contemporaneous. And that's something that I can tell you that when I was at the staff, that was something always that we would, would look to and look for. So great reminders. Really appreciate that insight. Um, so back to Paul Munter and the statements. Um, that he's made over his tenure. Um, he did release a statement focusing on fraud um, last year. Um, and we saw, of course, the PCAB proposal um, on no CLAR, so noncompliance with with laws and regulations. In anything particular that you think um, is, is important for uh, our listeners that they should be thinking about? Absolutely. I think the expectations are really high in this, in this place. I think there's an expectation that registrants need better controls and they need better fraud risk you know, prevention. And I think there's an expectation that auditors need to be, you know, better gatekeepers and and, and doing more to detect fraud and um, and to deal with it. So I think there's a real focus on it. There, there's an awful lot of activity, and, and as I said, with the current pressures out there, we think the risk of fraud is higher. We're seeing that play out in whistleblower activity. The environment is one again where folks are very quick to whistleblow and. There's, Especially if you're going to get paid to do there's it. There's a pretty big uh, potential <laughs> reward for that, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and we're seeing that. And, and so we have that activity is really high. It's a, with the highest year whistleblower awards, um, you know, ever. Yeah. And a lot more enforcement actions, you know, as well related to mm-hmm. uh, instances of fraud. So, you know, higher stakes, higher risk and higher expectations. So again, here, when I talk about, you know, what are the best practices, what, what should companies do? They really should have a really good process. Um, to evaluate, you know, whistleblower, you know, ethics logs, audit committee needs to be involved in this, particularly when there's allegations that deal with uh, more senior management. You need really clear communication. You often will need outside legal advice, and that probably needs to be independent, right? And then you need, as a registrant, you need to understand the auditor's responsibility, and that's where you know this proposed. Statement on NOCLAR would take our responsibilities to a much greater level, and that's currently, you know, being debated, and we're, we're waiting to see how that plays out. Um, so we'd probably have, need a whole other podcast on, <laughs> on that. Yeah. But under the under our current rules, right, we have a responsibility, and so we need to understand that, you know, that we're getting complete and you know access to to these things that we're aware of them. 
And then we have to look at, is it registrant responding correctly? Is the scope of an investigation appropriate? What are the findings? What are the remediations? Um, we often run into questions around privilege, right? And, and, and privilege is, 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 a, is a real concept, but it, doesn't, it can't get in the way of an auditor's responsibility so that the facts are not privileged and, and we need to understand you know, how these investigations go. And tying it back to the SAB 99 topic, mm-hmm. intentionality, right, is a, is a very negative qualitative factor. So a very small, you know, uh, quantitative amount, if, if there was intentionality behind it, can become material. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's our view. I think that's the it's view. It's crystal the clear. Has, it's the right? view of the SEC. That's, yeah. Yep. So yep. Um, you really, you really need to pay attention. So I, I do think that uh, this is an area that um, we all need to be very, very focused on. You know, I, I do want to highlight a point that uh, on a panel last week where the division director of enforcement, Gerbier and Graywall talked about the whistleblower program and, and told the audience flat out, like we are, and whistleblowers are coming to us because they have an incentive to do so, and they get rewarded for information they provide where we can actually bring bring actions. And they they are heavily utilizing that program, and they'll continue to do so. And so the 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 fact that they're highlighting, hey, the, this is probably where they're getting a lot of their cases, a lot of their actions. So it is important for for people to be thinking about that. So that's a great overview. Again, I, I think you know that we've not seen that the, the guidance necessarily hasn't really necessarily changed. Um, I think though that some of these pressures though have heightened uh, have heightened the importance of it, and obviously clawbacks is is right at the top of the list. But to your point, right where we are in in, um, in this environment, the macroeconomic conditions and the pressure on companies. So what else? I mean, just wrapping up, any final advice for for our listeners? Any key takeaways? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, first of all. I think if I was a preparer, I'd be really focused on how can I continuously improve my controls and processes? Because the, the real thing, and this will sound like motherhood and apple pie, is to avoid having errors yeah. right, in the first place. So the better your controls um, and you and avoid errors, it, it's interesting when we get into these situations where there's a, there's a whole list of unadjusted differences and errors. And in my job here at the firm, you know, we, we have tools that we help people with and people complain sometimes, oh, the tools are not, not that good. I said, well, if you have a hundred errors, it's really hard to make it work easily. <laughs> right, right, you know? right. The fewer errors, the fewer this, the easier this analysis is. Um, so that'd be a starting point. And then again, um, given the profitability changes out there and economic considerations, you really need, the other thing you need to do is, I think, agree on what's material you know, just as a starting point quantitatively, but you need to adjust that to actual operating results, right? So pay, mm-hmm. pay attention to that and realize that reduced profitability uh, reduces your materiality. So again, you might need to tweak your controls to get at a lower level. So that, that would be one thing. Um, I would say, uh, and this is more of a behavioral thing, but you, you need to try to have as objective and unbiased assessment as you can possibly have. As you and I have talked about, th- this is not going to be under the under the cover, right? So your analysis is going to be like if it could be challenged and it'd be shared with the SEC. First of all, you, and it you, may be public one day, yeah, right? Right, right. So you, first of all, you, you and your audit committee have to stand behind it. Your auditor has to has to be on board, and then um, the SEC is going to have their opportunity. So, so really good documentation is is really important. Um, so having a good process where you can do this in in a timely way. Um, oftentimes, these things happen in in the in the rush of the financial reporting cycle, and it could put a lot of stress, right? And we've actually seen enforcement actions where the SEC paid attention to the timeline, right? And they said, well, boy, there was a lot happening in a pretty short period here. And was there 
enough time to really fully vet this. And so um, keep that in mind. And, and there's all, again, there's a lot of pressures. Uh, companies don't want to miss their reporting deadlines, but sometimes either a whistleblower or an error can pop up at an in inconvenient time. And so the more prep you've done, the more everybody understands what the exercise is going to be, better off you're, you're going to be. I would say we all need to be alert to the risk of fraud and take that seriously. Do a good fraud risk brainstorming and make sure, again, your, your controls and your processes are, are keyed up because we, we do think that that's uh, going to be more difficult. And I think, um, I, I would, I would, I think those are the keys. And I really, I always come back to that better process you have, the more timely, better communications, um, and real strong role of the audit committee. I think are the best um, remedies to, uh, you know, that can provide the best solutions to these issues. Well, that, that is a great, uh, great note to end on. And I, what I will do, Mike, before we do close, I want to ask you a question. So um, we um, obviously have a, a break coming up. And one of the things that, um, you know, I've been looking forward to myself is, you know, I'll have um, both my sons um, at home with me. We'll be able to relax, probably spend some time watching, uh, college football, the bowl game. So I'm really looking forward to that. So I want to ask you with this time that we'll have off, hopefully you won't be working that much, um, knowing you, you probably will be. Um, <laughs> but uh, what, what are your plans uh, for the holiday break? Yeah, we're excited. I'm, I'm looking at the forecast because we're hoping for a little more snow out West because we're planning on doing a little ski trip. Uh, it is a nice time to say the firm uh, kind of shuts down. It's quiet time. My, my daughters will be home. And so we're all going to do a nice ski trip. So we're hoping for some good snow and and weather and, and enjoy a, a little break before, before what I think is going to be a pretty challenging year be. end for, for all be. of us. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed on the uh, snow. Appreciate it. Thank Great you. Great to be here. Yep. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.